summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Don't want to speak too soon, but might be coming. Good morning to those who are here with us in the building. Good morning to those watching from home. Today, we've reached our last two stories in the life of Abraham, uh, in Genesis anyway, and there's some overlap between the two stories that we're going to look at briefly today, but they hit on different enough themes that we're actually going to treat them separately this morning. So two mini-sermons instead of one full sermon today. So that'll allow us to treat each passage in its own right and give adequate reflection to both grieving well and to finishing well. Grieving well, finishing well. So would you pray with me before we turn our attention to grieving well? Lord, you're big and you love us. And that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You've seen it on the walls, on our website. We've titled this sermon series about Abraham's life, Wandering. Uh, we named it that for two reasons. One, because I think it summarizes what we've seen so far as we followed the life of Abraham. There's a reason why a few hundred years after the events recorded here in Genesis, God would teach his people to recite, speaking of Abraham, my father was a wandering Aramean. That was the thing they were supposed to repeat about Abraham. The man never gets to settle down in any kind of permanent way. He lives in tents. He's navigating a world in which he's never fully at home. But that's just the thing, right? That the Christian is never fully at home on this earth either. So the other reason we named this series Wandering is because that word also happens to be an apt description of what God has called us to. As we live as Christians in a world that's not our home, we face situations we hoped never to face. We are forced to navigate challenges that we feel ill-equipped to navigate. One of those challenges that God has called some of us to walk through, even this past year, is the challenge of grieving the loss of a loved one. In some cases, the loss may have been expected. In others, the loss was sudden. In some cases, the grief, though certainly not easy, has been relatively straightforward. In others, the grief has contained complications, mixed emotions that make us maybe even feel a bit ashamed. In some moments, we found ourselves grateful for strong community ministering to us in our grief. In other moments, we've experienced profound loneliness in our grief. For just a few minutes this morning, we're going to look at Abraham's grief over the loss of his wife, Sarah. Our treatment of it will be brief because Scripture's treatment of it is brief, but I think there's something here for all of us, actually. For those who are in the most severe moments of the pain of loss, of a loved one, and for those not in the depths of sorrow right now, but who want to be prepared when that day comes. Before we do, this is heavy, right? So uh, I'd like us, especially for those whose losses are still fresh, so let's just take a moment, a brief moment of silence to pray for those in our midst, some that you may know, some you may not know, the person next to you and the grief that they're going through. Let's pray for those in our midst who are presently in the throes of grief. Can we do that? Let's silently do so.
In the first of our two scripture texts today, Abraham loses his wife Sarah. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 23? Genesis 23. Sarah dies at the age of 127, which is 62 years after the one true God called Abraham and Sarah to leave everything that they knew, their family, the gods they worshipped, their father's house, to go to an unspecified destination. You probably remember from chapter 12 that they answered that call. And in the 62 years since then, they've seen war. They've seen miracles. They've had colossal failures. They've talked with God himself. They've tried to write their own story, and then they've trusted God to write their story for them. What a journey it's been together for this couple, right? And they've seen perhaps the great purpose of their life fulfilled as God miraculously provided a son for them at the ages of 90 for Sarah and 100 for Abraham, the son God promised he would use to bless all nations on earth. Now, that son is 37, still unmarried, but Sarah has seen the son of the promise grow up and now God takes her home. So as I read the account of Sarah's death, follow along with me and consider this question. What does Sarah's death mean to Abraham? What does Sarah's death mean to Abraham? Uh, I'm going to read the whole chapter actually, Genesis 23. And then we'll just have some brief reflections on it. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, uh, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down. Before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So, the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. 
I asked what Sarah's death means to Abraham. In a few short minutes together, I'd like to ask that again, but just in the form of three short reflections. Uh, one, what does the loss of a loved one mean for God's promises? Two, what does the loss of a loved one mean for our emotions? And three, what does the loss of a loved one mean for future generations? For God's promises, for our emotions, for future generations. First, what does the loss of a loved one mean for God's promises? I think what we see here in the text we just read is that even after the loss of a loved one, God's promises still stand. Even after the loss of a loved one, God's promises still stand. Don't Abraham's actions display a belief that God's promises will still come true despite the death of his wife? Notice where this tomb is, verse 2. It's in Canaan. It's in the promised land. It's near Hebron. This land is occupied by Hittites at the moment, but Abraham knows that God has promised that his descendants will one day inherit this land, and he still believes it. And so he purchases the first tiny slice of land as a preview of coming attractions, we could say, uh, trusting that the future of his people is indeed here, where God has promised. So it's a simple idea, but I don't know who needs to hear it this morning. What God has promised you, nobody's death can steal from you. What God has promised you, nobody's death can steal from you. The death of your parent can't steal God's promises for you. The death of your spouse can't steal God's promises for you. The death of your child can't even steal God's promises for you. If God has promised you, which he has, to never leave you or forsake you, if God has promised, which he has, to work All things for your good. If God has promised, which he has, that that if you delight in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. Nobody's death can nullify those promises or keep you from receiving, claiming, treasuring those promises as your own. They're yours and they stand even in the face of death because they have been guaranteed by a God who is stronger than death. Second, what does the loss of a loved one mean for God's, for our emotions? What does the loss of a loved one mean for our emotions? I think we see this in our text. Even though we trust in God's promises, it's appropriate to mourn in response to death. Even though we trust in God's promises, it's appropriate to mourn in response to death. In some Christian circles, it's almost treated as if the most spiritually mature response to death, to losing a loved one, is to be stoically cold, put together. But of course, that's hard to support from Scripture, right? As Jesus, the only perfect human, the most spiritually mature person ever to live, uh, wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And here in our text, verse 2, we see Abraham going in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Why does Abraham weep if God's promises still stand? I think it's for the same reason that Jesus wept, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, because death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. Contrary to well-meaning cliches, feel-good poems, death is not a friend who takes us by the hand to carry us over, help us on the journey to the other side. Death is not a part of God's original design for humanity. It's a consequence of sin entering the world. And it's an enemy that will one day be conquered once and for all. 
And so we do weep when that enemy uh, called death scores a temporary victory by claiming someone we love. Sure, we know that death won't have the last word, but it's an immense tragedy that death is even allowed to have any word, however temporary. So, grieving friend, let yourself mourn. Allow yourself to mourn. Maybe it's been a few years, and you imagined you'd be more over it by now, whatever that means. But some days the grief just comes back like a tidal wave, and you're wrecked by it all over again. That's not a deficiency in you. That's because you were hardwired for eternity and death is a disruption to God's good design. Cry out to God. Bring your tears to him. And as you weep, remember that the one mediator between God and humanity understands your tears because he also felt anger and wept in the face of the death of one he loved. Third, finally, what does the loss of a loved one mean for future generations? What does the loss of a loved one mean for future generations? And here's the case I want to make here from our text. Even as God's spirit comforts mourners like us, our grief is not ultimately about us. Even as God's spirit comforts mourners, our grief is not ultimately about us. Now in our day, this claim is the most countercultural of the three that I'm making in this mini-sermon. So much so that it may seem harsh or cold when you see it up on the screen like that. Here's what our hyper-psychologized world today tells us about grief, right? You grieve however feels most authentic for you, right? Practice whatever self-care you need to practice. After all, you can't help others put on their oxygen masks before you put on your own, right? To use that airplane analogy. And there's plenty to affirm in that, isn't there? Right? Each of our grief journeys is different. It is important that each of us lets our journey be our journey instead of trying to make it follow some rigid stage-by-stage progression that moves forward at the same pace as everyone else's grief journeys do. All of that is important, right? But when taken to the extreme, a focus merely on caring for myself and my grief in such a way that I just give in to whatever impulses I'm feeling at any moment of that grief journey may result in future generations missing out on what they could have otherwise learned from watching me grieve for the glory of God. Did you notice how, even though Abraham is freshly grieving the death of his wife, his mind is intentionally attentive to the generations that will come after him? Look at it again with me. Verse 6, the Hittites want to offer him a tomb that he can use to bury his dead. Quite a nice offer. But Abraham knows a borrowed tomb is not a lasting inheritance. So, he doesn't accept their offer. He politely declines, verses 8 and 9. He says, let me buy the property instead as a burial place. The owner of the property says, hey, you know what? You can have it. Just take it. You don't need to buy it from us. But Abraham's still thinking about the future generations in his family, even in his grief, because he knows that if this burial plot is just given to him as a gift, then it's only going to take a generation or two before the sons of Ephron, descendants of Ephron, the Hittites, say to Abraham's grandkids, okay, time to give it back. 
right? It's only if the land is legitimately purchased that this slice of the promised land will remain in Abraham's family forever. So he buys it. He buys it at a pretty astronomical price, actually. He, pay, he pays the first price that Ephron names, which is unheard of in Middle Eastern bargaining then or now, to accept the first price. You, you never do that. But Abraham does because he doesn't want his descendants experiencing any counterclaim to this plot of land down the road. So do you see Abraham's long-term thinking here, even in the midst of his grief? This is the first permanent possession for God's people in the land of the promise. This is the first deposit on their inheritance. And even in Abraham's grief, he's able to look beyond his own needs in the moment to bless his descendants. What about us as we grieve? The next generation is watching. What will they see in us, in our grief? What will they learn from it? We might even ask, how will they be blessed by us as we grieve? I learned more about God from watching my parents at their parents' funerals than I did in 30 Bible lessons at our kitchen table growing up. Don't misunderstand that. It's critical that they did the Bible lessons, and those Bible lessons helped me understand what was happening as I watched them grieve at their parents' funerals. But while we continue to teach the word to younger folks in our families and in our church family, know that eyes are on us as we grieve. In our grief, we are instructing the next generation, whether we intend to or not. The question isn't if they'll learn, but rather what they will learn from us about life, about death, about God, about hope as they observe our grief. Big idea for this first mini-sermon today. Let's minister to future generations by grieving with hope. Let's minister to future generations by grieving with hope. Abraham demonstrates this. He believes that God's promises will stand, which enables him to weep with an undercurrent of hope that manifests itself in a future-oriented, others-centered approach to the loss of his wife. I mean, as we zoom out, we can notice the proportions in the 20 verses that we just read. Two verses about Abraham's private grief, 18 verses about his securing a blessing for his descendants through a legacy of faith in God's promise. That's grieving with hope for the future. Friends, if, if this life was all we had, grieving a loved one would be an absolutely hopeless endeavor. There'd be nothing more final than the grave, which would be a terrifying prospect because there's nothing more inevitable than the grave either. But we have hope because of Christ. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus Christ, as Scripture says, but think about that, the implications of it, for a moment as we close. If the fulfillment of God's promises rests on Christ, that means that all of God's promises were thrown in jeopardy when that stone was rolled over Jesus' tomb. If Christ had stayed in that tomb, other words, in other words, God's promises to us would have stayed there with him. But, I know it's still three weeks away, but can I give a spoiler? That gravestone couldn't hold Jesus in. Death wasn't able to contain him, and so for those of us who belong to him, 
God's promises are very much alive, even when the loss of a loved one makes us feel like we just can't go on. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is big enough to take our grief as we bring it to him day after day. And for those of us who have died with him to our sin and have been raised with him to new life in Christ, he promises to one day wipe every tear away from our eyes and usher us into the place where there will be no more crying or pain or death or sadness anymore because the former things will have passed away. It's in that hope that we navigate our own journeys of grief. Let's pray. Lord, I know that the grief we're speaking of is fresh for some, many in our congregation. For others, it may seem far off, Lord. Comfort those who are in the throes of the pain of loss. As they cry out to you in their anguish, hear them, wrap your arms around them. And for those for whom grief seems like it's far in the future, help us to prepare so that when that day comes, it is, as it almost inevitably will, that we may grieve for your glory, to do so with hope in such a way that leaves hope for the coming generations. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's so many examples of this past and present that a name will probably come to mind for you immediately as soon as I say this. Uh, people who started out great, but then didn't finish so well. Started out great, didn't finish so well. The Bible has examples of them. Solomon, King Asa. Uh, today's news headlines have examples of them. Some of our favorite celebrity pastors, evangelists recently. Here's how it goes, right? <clears throat> God offers them life to the full. They taste it. They teach others about it. But then after years sometimes of experiencing the life to the full that God offers, they say, as Adam and Eve did, what if there's an even fuller life out there that I'm missing out on? And so they hedge their bets, so to speak, uh, by exploring whether there might be more fullness of life outside the bounds of what God has prescribed. And of course, their pursuit of life apart from God results in death. And the tragic endings to their stories are cautionary tales for us. But what about Abraham? As we approach the end of his narrative in Genesis, was he one of those who finished well? Or was he one of those who turned away from God's path at the end? Would you turn with me to Genesis 25 if you're not already there? Genesis 25. Quick refresher on the previous few chapters as you're turning there. Chapter 22 is when Abraham's great victory of faithful obedience happened. He lays down that which he loves most. Chapter 23, we read a few minutes ago, buys a tiny piece of the promised land uh, upon the death of his wife. Chapter 24, which we're skipping over, his son Isaac grows up and gets married. So at this point, at the beginning of chapter 25, the Abraham narrative has more or less resolved. The promises are on their way to being fulfilled. He's super old, even for that time. So the reader might expect to read something like, So Abraham died. But right as we get ready to read the story of Abraham's death, look at how chapter 25 starts. Abraham took another wife. What? 
Oh, when we keep reading, we see in verse 2, he had six more sons with this wife. Right? This should raise at least yellow, if not red flags for us here. Not because it's wrong to remarry after your spouse dies. Not at all. It's alarming, rather, because we've read God's unique call to Abraham. Right? That he uh, was told that he's going to have a son through his wife, Sarah. And he's actually tried before to go about it a different way through Hagar, and God was not so happy with that. Right? Um, so, as Abraham's promised son, Isaac, has married late and married a woman who has turned out to be barren, uh, what exactly is Abraham doing? Taking another wife and having more kids? Is he back to hedging his bets? Trying to make the promise happen on his own again? Is it possible that Abraham is one of those who doesn't finish well? In this last Genesis passage that deals with Abraham, we'll briefly read a three-part story, and I'm going to frame it this way. Uh, Abraham has a chance to hedge his bets, but goes all in and dies satisfied as a result. He has a chance to hedge his bets, but goes all in and dies satisfied as a result. And I'm sorry for the gambling metaphors. I'm not a gambler myself. Uh, but I use those terms because of their common understanding in our language. To hedge one's bets is to reduce the risk of loss, to make it so that ideally, no matter the outcome, you win something, right? Uh, to go all in, on the other hand, is the opposite. It's to take the biggest risk such that you either win it all or you're sunk, right? So, so what I want to show is that Abraham has a chance to hedge his bets, but instead he goes all in and dies satisfied as a result. So first, the chance to hedge his bets. That's verses 1 through 4. Let's read it. Uh, if Abraham, uh, before we do, if Abraham wants to hedge his bets, this wife or concubine named Keturah provides an opportunity to do so, right? Because more sons means greater odds that at least one of them will turn out to be the father of a great nation that's been promised that will bless the whole world. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Abraham took another wife. Elsewhere, she's called a concubine, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letishim, and Laamim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, a hotly debated question uh, is whether this passage is intended to be read chronologically at this point or not. In other words, does Abraham take Keturah as his wife after Sarah's death, as it flows chronologically in the story? Or is this just the author rounding out the narrative as it comes to the end by making sure that we know that sometime earlier Abraham had taken another wife named Keturah and had six other sons with her? The Hebrew could actually go either way. It could mean Abraham took another wife or Abraham had taken another wife. In other words, possibility A, this could be chronological. With Abraham taking another wife following Sarah's death, if so, that at least raises questions about whether Abraham is creating yet another contingency plan in his old age because he's worried that Isaac and his infertile wife, Rebecca, might never have kids. But... On the other hand, this may not be chronological. In fact, I've become convinced that it's not. Uh, for one thing, if Abraham fathered six more sons at age 140 plus, uh, when Sarah had a hard time believing back in chapter 18 that even 99-year-old Abraham could father a child, 
these six births would probably be more miraculous than that of Isaac, right? I find possibility B more likely, that the author here is accounting for the breadth of the genealogy by making sure that we know, before he gives us Abraham's death, that way back when, before Isaac probably, it wasn't just Hagar that Abraham had a son with. Keturah was another concubine slash wife for Abraham, and she bore him six sons that end up becoming nations in their own right. Either way, whether Abraham takes this extra wife after Sarah's death or before, as Abraham's now getting old, nearing death, and as his son, who's supposed to carry the promise, doesn't get married till age 40 and then finds out his wife Rebecca's barren, Keturah's boys provide an opportunity for Abraham, if he wants to, to hedge his bets, right? If he keeps these six boys close, right? If he keeps them in the conversation for the inheritance, then maybe, even if the whole Isaac-Rebekah thing doesn't result in a great nation, he can still pass on the family wealth and promise to one of these other sons. Can I ask, are you ever tempted to hedge your bets when it comes to God? We'll reflect more on that in a moment. For now, let's read the next two verses where we see that by the time of Abraham's death, he actually leaves no doubt about his commitment to Isaac as son of the promise. Verses 5 and 6. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. You ever heard some, some version of the legend of the warriors burning the boats when they arrived to conquer a particular place? Sometimes this practice is attributed to the Vikings, sometimes to one of the conquistadors. The legend is that upon arrival, they burned the boats that they had traveled on uh, to give themselves no option of retreat, no option of turning back, no way out. The message then is that when you're applying for a job or when you're pursuing a romantic interest or considering an investment opportunity you really believe in, you increase your chances for success when you go all in, get rid of any escape plans that tempt you to give up when the going gets tough. Right, you ever heard advice like that? We can debate the wisdom of advice to burn the boats uh, as much as we debate whether Vikings and conquistadors are worthy examples for Christians. But the fact is, in our story, when push comes to shove, Abraham certainly does take a burn-the-boats type of approach, type of action. He puts all his eggs in Isaac's basket. Look at those two verses we just read. From a worldly perspective, what he does in verses 5 and 6 is super risky. Isaac has no kids, no prospects for having kids. Worldly wisdom would say, Abraham, keep your options open. Don't send Keturah's boys away yet. But instead, we see another example of the sort of belief manifesting itself in action that Dr. Lau preached on last week. He sends Keturah's six sons away with gifts. That means they're not going to inherit like Isaac will. Now, in that culture, he didn't have to give them gifts at all. It's actually super gracious that he sends them away with some gifts. It was kindness of him to do so. But in the end, those gifts are all they're going to get from Abraham. Everything Abraham owns has been given to Isaac, as verse 5 says. In giving Isaac everything and in sending the other sons away to live their own lives elsewhere, Abraham acts in a way that's consistent with his belief that God's promise about Isaac will come true. That had to be hard for Abraham to do. 
knowing that he'd possibly die without seeing the fulfillment of the promises, namely the birth of a child for Isaac. To return to the metaphor, it would have been much easier for Abraham to at least keep a lifeboat on hand, a backup plan that he could see with his own eyes. Isn't that the temptation for us? What boats are we tempted to keep anchored in the bay? Maybe for you, your lifeboat is the thought, if this marriage doesn't get better, I can get divorced. Or, if this church doesn't start scratching my itch, I can watch that other church online. Or, if my spouse doesn't meet my needs, I can get my needs met another way. It's time to burn those boats. It's time to send them away, like Abraham sent away his other sons. Life with God is hard, friends. And if we leave ourselves that outlet for escape, we will take it. The faith of Abraham, the faith that Jesus commends in his disciples 2,000 years later than this, is the faith that says, we have no backup plan. Where else can we go? That was Abraham's approach. And so, even though at the time of his death he hasn't seen the complete fulfillment of many of God's promises for him, we're about to see that Abraham does not die regretting going all in on God's promises. Let's read that finally in verses 7 through 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. I want to latch on to those words in verse 8. An old man and full of years. An old man and full of years. If you're working from another translation, you might read old and contented, which is probably more accurate because the words of years there are not actually uh, in the Hebrew, they're added by the ESV. It literally says Abraham dies an old man and full. Full meaning contented, satisfied. How could he be satisfied, though, if this is his situation at death? Right? He was promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, but instead, his promised son got married at 40 to a woman who's infertile for the first 20 years of their marriage. He was promised that his descendants would inherit this land, but he's only got a single tiny burial plot when it's all said and done. He has now lost his wife, whom he loved. What's so satisfying about any of that? The answer to that question, a full answer to that question, is a little longer than we can deal with today. We'll look at the answer the writer to the Hebrews provides to that question uh, when we wrap up this series in two weeks. But for now, we should say this. In order for Abraham to die satisfied, as it says he does, he must not have been seeking his satisfaction where the world seeks satisfaction. If he was seeking satisfaction through property, he wouldn't have died full. If he was seeking satisfaction through family, he wouldn't have died full. If he was seeking satisfaction through safety or security, he wouldn't have died full. If he died full, he must have been seeking satisfaction somewhere else. If he died content, then his decision to go all in, so to speak, on God's promises must not have failed him. Question, 
are you going to die satisfied? None of us know for sure if our deaths are far off, close at hand. What if your time was up tomorrow and the Lord called you home? As you took your last breaths, would you be doing so full, satisfied, contented? Our big idea for this second section of our uh, text today. Instead of hedging our bets, let's die satisfied because we were all in on God's promises. Instead of hedging our bets, let's die satisfied because we were all in on God's promises. Friends, life to the full is only found in God. If any of us think we're immune to wandering off, to look for fullness of life elsewhere, even in our later years, there are too many examples, ancient and modern, to remind us the contrary. If not for the grace of God, any of us could disqualify ourselves before we finish the race by giving in to the temptation to hedge our bets by seeking fulfillment elsewhere. None of us, including Abraham, are all in all the time. But someone was. His name's Jesus. Great, 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 great grandson of Isaac. He's the only one who never once hedged his bets who started the race faithfully when he left his heavenly throne and left the riches of the universe to empty himself and step into our mess, and who finished the race faithfully when he stared death in the eyes and didn't shy away, carrying his cross to Calvary to die there in our place. As we purpose to finish our own respective races well, let's look to the one who was all in on our behalf all the way through the finish line, and in gratitude to his finishing the race that we couldn't finish, and for his dying the death that we should have died, let's go all in, can we? On living our own lives according to his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be a people who finish well. Some whom we have respected, looked up to, even revered, have turned away from you at the end even after being used mightily by you. And so, Lord, we know that if not for your grace, any of us can and will end up in that same place. Lord, protect us, preserve us, watch over us. Finish the good work that you began in us. Bring us home safely, faithfully to your kingdom where we will reign with you forever and ever. In the meantime, help us to cling to your promises. Help us to see the lies of the enemy for what they are when he tries to pull at us, when he tries to tell us that life can be found somewhere outside of you. Lord, help us to cling to the life that's found only in you. Help us to rest in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.